Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. All right, we're going to start today in Luke 11. Uh, It's a similar passage as the one we're going to look at in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The one difference is in Luke 11, Jesus starts with a story about a cranky neighbor. This is what he says. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanted to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night and my family and I are in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and get you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. So in our day, you could go to a neighbor and ask to borrow something, and normally a neighbor will say yes. But it's nothing like Jesus's day. Uh, Hospitality was a much higher value then. Now we need to walk through this a little bit to get what Jesus is driving at. He says, someone arrives at your house, Of course, in those days, there were no places to stop along the way for food, like no Chick-fil-A or Chipotle or In-N-Out Burger. Uh, Giving and receiving hospitality was essential for survival. The hour of arrival was irrelevant. Even if it was midnight, the host was to provide a meal whether he wanted to or not, and the guest was to eat the meal whether the guest was hungry or not. That's just the way hospitality worked. When a stranger came to someone's house, that stranger was regarded not just as the guest of that home, but as the guest of that whole village. So the meal had to be the best the village could offer. Now, here a guest arrives and the host is not adequately prepared to feed him that kind of a meal. And so Jesus said, the host goes to the neighbor and the host says, a guest has arrived. I have nothing for him. I mean, that doesn't mean that literally there was no food in the house. You know, they weren't starving. Do you ever hear someone say something like, I have nothing to wear? Does that mean literally I have nothing with which to cover my body? I can only go to this event if it's clothing optional? No, it means I have nothing that won't make me look like a fashion challenge cheapskate. I mean, this host is going to a neighbor and saying, I have nothing to serve this guest that will uphold the honor of our community. So out of politeness, he asks for just the minimum. He says, can I have three loaves of bread? Bread in that day was not the meal. In a sense, bread was like the the fork and the knife. They would have the main dish in a pot and then people would take a fresh piece of bread and dip it in and that's the way they would eat the meal. And so the host here is asking the neighbor for just the minimum, kind of out of politeness but with the understanding that the neighbor would offer anything that's needed. He's trusting the generosity of the neighbor. I need to set forth the kind of meal that would not shame us as a community. Now, if you were a neighbor, you wouldn't hesitate at something like this. I mean, it would be an honor to be asked. It would mean that you were thought of as a person of substance and generosity in the community. 
Of course, this is going on publicly. You know, several people in the neighborhood who'd be able to hear would be listening in on this conversation. To say no would be to disgrace yourself before the whole village. Jesus says, now imagine this happens. You go to your neighbor and your neighbor says, we've already bolted the door for the night. The kids are already in bed. You know, they might wake up. I can't do it. I mean, these would be recognized by Jesus's listeners as ludicrous excuses. And that's the point. Grammatically, Jesus starts the story with, can you imagine this happening? Like, can you imagine this? And the expected reply would be, no. I mean, that's unthinkable. It could never happen. It's so absurd that they would be chuckling over it. Like, it's impossible. Jesus says, okay, but for the sake of argument, like, pretend like it happens. What should you do? He says, just stand there by the door. Like, don't go home. Just stand there by the door and keep knocking, and your neighbor won't be able to go back to sleep. Eventually, Jesus says he'll respond. You know he will. If nothing else, if he won't even do it because of your friendship, just sheer persistence will just wear him down. Now, it's very important to understand what Jesus is not saying in this story. So just kind of stay with, here, stay with me for a moment. I want to say what Jesus is not saying because this can lead to horrible misunderstanding about prayer. Uh, Jesus is not saying that God is like a cranky neighbor. It's important that we understand this because there are people who think God is reluctant to give anything in response to prayer, that he's not really concerned about my desires or my fears or my hopes. And when that happens, people start searching for the right technique or the right secret to make prayer work. I remember having a conversation with a woman who came from another kind of tradition. Uh, she had heard some of the prayers around our church and she said, you know, you won't get your prayers answered around here because you don't pray right around here. I said, like, what do you mean by that? She said, you shouldn't ask God to do things. You should just boldly demand it. The secret to getting prayers answered is this technique, she thought. Just boldly claim, just make demands of God and God will do it. You know, my parents loved me. Uh, they enjoyed giving gifts to me, but it would not have worked out well for me if I would have gone to my mother and said, mom, I demand you to buy me a new bike. <laughs> God is not withholding stuff until we find like the secret technique. Some people think the secret technique is to have a high degree of certainty. They're convinced that if we don't get the answer that we want, it's because we don't have enough faith. You know, and people will beat themselves up over this. They forget the story of the father who comes to Jesus and says, if you can, would you help my son? And Jesus says, why do you say if? Like everything is possible to the one who believes. And the man says, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. And that's enough. All you need is just to have enough faith to go to Jesus. Jesus is not saying that praying to God is like making a request of a cranky neighbor. Jesus is saying something like this. When you go to your neighbor, when you go to this neighbor, everything is against you. It's night, he's asleep, the doors are locked, the kids are tucked in, he may not even like you, and yet you still go to him and you know he'll be responsive. You know eventually, if nothing else, persistence will do it, and so you persist. And if that's the case with your neighbor, this is what Jesus is saying, how much more should you persist with God who is never asleep? 
but is always attentive to you. Right now, God is paying attention to you as you're listening to these words. God is never reluctant, but always eager to give. Right now, God longs to pour out blessing on you as you're listening to these words. He's never distant. He's always closer than the air you breathe. Right now, God is closer to you than you can imagine. And Jesus says, if you persist with cranky neighbors, then how much more should you persist in prayer with God? All right, now this brings us to what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. The next part in Luke 11 is identical to what Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you when you ask him? So verse 7 is where Jesus really gives the command of this text. And the command is ask. Grammatically, each of these verbs here is given in the present tense and it's imperative, which could be translated like this. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and don't stop seeking. Knock and just stand there and knock and knock and knock and knock. Then he goes on to give another picture, another analogy, and this is one that involves a parent. Again, there's some irony here. He says, who among you would give a child a snake when he asks for a fish? Generally, parents don't do that sort of thing. You know, that's not the heart of a loving parent. And then Jesus makes this remarkable statement, which I hope that we can fully unpack here today. It looks kind of shocking at first, but it's very good news. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts, and that word can come uh, across as kind of a slap in the face, evil. Of course, that's not the whole truth about us, but it is the truth about us. Uh, I'm a fallen man. I am self-centered. I can be vindictive. I can be amazingly petty. But even so, I know the joy of giving to my children. You know, I learned real early on that feeling on Christmas morning when my young children would walk into our living room and see a fully assembled toy that they asked for. You know, that I was up until two o'clock in the morning assembling because some pathological liar at the factory wrote the words easy to assemble on the box. <laughs> but I know what it's like to see their faces light up and to know it's worth it. Even I know that feeling, fallen, fallen as I am. But in God, there is no fallenness, no evil. This is how we must come to think and believe with our whole being about God. There is nothing reluctant, nothing withholding about him. In the heart of God, there is nothing but goodness and generosity. So if in your life you've ever had a, a moment where you felt joy at giving. Like take that feeling and purge it of all selfishness and intensify it like a thousand times over and extend it throughout eternity. And then you get some kind of glimmer of the self-giving, joy-filled love of God the Father. I mean, that's who God is. Therefore, Jesus says, keep asking and seeking and knocking with confidence 
because you approach God, not on the basis of your performance or your spiritual track record, but solely on the basis of the sheer goodness of God the Father. Jesus says, you've just gotta ask and keep asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep knocking, just don't quit. You know, you get disillusioned, you get disappointed, you have prayers that aren't answered, and we don't know why, we don't understand all that. Jesus says, just know this, that far more than you want prayers answered, God longs to give wonderful things to every one of his children. So whatever, whatever else you do, don't stop. All right, in the time that remains, I wanna talk about two kinds of prayer that I'd like to invite us to pursue to help us ask and seek and knock. And we'll get into that in just a moment. One of my favorite theologians is a theologian and pastor named David Taylor, or W. David Taylor, if you are Googling him. Taylor writes on the intersection between art and theology, and he's worked with people like Bono and Eugene Peterson to talk about the Psalms as a sort of guidebook to life. As someone who spends a lot of time reading and writing and re researching uh, music festivals and church communities, I love how Taylor's writings reflect on art and culture. But Taylor isn't just a nerd, he is also a pastor. So if you go on his Instagram or his Twitter, you'll see uh, countless prayers for mundane things. He writes prayers for things like moving home or for patience, prayers for back to school driving and for summer fun. He also prays for bigger things, uh, things like forgiving our neighbors, prayers for a country that's broken, prayers for forgiveness and healing for abundancy in life. Prayer is a part of his daily social media account, and whenever I scroll and see one, it, it prompts me to reflect on my prayer and my daily life. Maybe as you're listening to Matt today, you find a similar prompting. You're thinking about what your life of prayer is. And no matter where you find yourself in your prayer season today, whether that be an overflowing and abundant life, or if your prayer life is a little dried up or redundant, we have an awesome team here at Blue Oaks that wants to be a part of your prayer and your spiritual formation. Did you know that Blue Oaks has a team that prays over our community and the needs of our community? Did you know that we have a way to pray for you if you're feeling burdened or overwhelmed by something? Did you know that we have an awesome group of staff uh, that wants to help you if you feel like your prayer life is stalled or blocked? It may seem like a weird infomercial right now, but I ask those questions and I tell you about that because uh, the prayer page on our website isn't just a promotional thing. It's something that helps us in our spiritual formation. And I know in seasons uh, of my faith, when prayer uh, is easy, it's one of the most important aspects of my daily walk with God. And, and when God seems absent, the prayer and community helps me connect in my faith. So if today you're feeling that prompting to reach out or to join a team, I encourage you after Matt's message to log on to blueoakschurch.org, click the latest news button, and find the prayer tab. Prayer is important, and I hope that God prompts you to action and movement in some way this week in your prayer life. 
let's rejoin Matt as he talks about these verses and how they not only highlight the importance of prayer, but also how we can categorize two types of prayer. All right, the first kind of prayer that will help us ask and seek and knock is what Richard Foster calls ordinary prayer. And the idea here is you just pray about whatever is on your heart, the ordinary events of your day. Pray about your family as you think about them or are concerned about them. Pray about your work, pray about your frustrations, pray about your problems. At the start of your day maybe or at the end of your day, just kind of go through what's on your heart. Talk to God about what you're really concerned about. Ordinary prayer means you come as you are to God as God is. Because here's the thing, and this is real important. When you pray, if you only pray for the things that sound spiritual, but that you're not genuinely interested in, if you only pray about that, it will kill your prayer life. You know, interestingly, most prayers in the Bible fall in this category of what might be called ordinary prayer. One of my favorites is in the book of Jonah, and you may know this story. Jonah resists God, he's swallowed by a fish, finally he preaches to Nineveh, and he tells them that they're about to be judged and they're gonna be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh believe him and they repent and so they're not destroyed. Now you would think that Jonah would be happy that the people had responded to his preaching this way. I mean, you would think Jonah would be thankful for God's mercy and goodness. But the text says, but this was very displeasing to Jonah and he became angry. Like he was angry that God didn't destroy Nineveh. Like maybe he felt like it would ruin his prophetic track record or something, you know, because he had said that it was gonna happen. And so Jonah prayed to the Lord and said this, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's what Jonah prayed to God. And then he goes out on the side of the hill and he sits down to watch what's gonna happen to Nineveh. And while he's out there sulking, it's real hot and God notices this. And so the writer says that God causes a vine to grow up around Jonah and it provided shade for him. And he sat there sulking and pouting and watching Nineveh, you know, waiting to see if it was gonna be destroyed or if he was gonna be destroyed. And God sees his discomfort and he brings a vine. The text says Jonah was very happy about the vine, but then God sent a worm that ate the vine and made it wither because Jonah had some growing to do. And so the vine, the vine is gone. And then the text says, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. This is Jonah, like the prophet of God, praying about shade, asking God that he might die because he no longer has shade. I mean, he could have just moved. No, he prefers just to die, like get it over with. There's no shade. The vine's gone, I like the vine, the worm came, I'm not happy about the worm, I would just rather die. But here's what's amazing. God is perfectly willing to talk to Jonah about shade. God who sent the vine is perfectly willing to talk about this. But God said to Jonah, 
Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And so God is going to act wisely to help Jonah become a bigger person. And so he goes on to say, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? So God's going to help them grow. But here's the deal with Jonah. About the only virtue of his prayer was that he was honest. I mean, it was real. And that's enough for God to take it seriously. C.S. Lewis put it like this, We must lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. So when it comes to this business of prayer, I want to recommend that you just start with what concerns you. Even if those concerns seem small or selfish, God will help you grow. If what's on your mind is the vine, just start by praying about the vine and God will help you get to the place where you're praying about Nineveh. Have you ever had your mind wander when you're praying? I used to feel guilty about that, but here's something I've learned. If you find your mind consistently wandering towards something, it's probably because that's what you need to be praying about. Now, we get troubled by mixed motives and that's understandable. For instance, you want your business to go well, and part of that is concern for your clients, or, or maybe it's concern for being able to give more of your resources to God. But part of it is selfish concern for your own success. But here's the deal. If we wait to pray until our motives are pure, we'll wait until we're dead. So don't wait. I mean, just bring it all before God. You know, it may be that you're single and you're aware that you want God to give you a relationship with a person of strong character, of you know, keen moral fiber, but you also want someone who is heart-stoppingly physically attractive and you feel kind of superficial to pray about that. You know, God already knows what you want. It's not like it's going to come as a shock to God. You know, gosh, what a superficial person you turned out to be. I had no idea. I mean, he already knows. You know, the alternative to ordinary prayer is that we just worry and obsess and isolate ourselves from God. So pray the unvarnished concerns of your heart. Pray about whatever concerns you as you wake up in the morning or as you go through your day or as you go to sleep at night or your relationships or your work or like anything. You get some financial news. Uh, your boss is upset with you. You have a project. You're not sure uh, it's going to get done on time. You're on the road and you're frustrated. Do you know, even with the person who really loves you, like, they love to know the details of your life. It's one of the ways you gauge the intimacy of the, you know, the affection level of a relationship. The deeper you go with someone, the more interested they are in listening to your details. If you don't like the person, it kind of bogs you down when they start getting into the details. Well, there is not a detail in your heart. There is not a detail in your life in which God is not intensely interested. That's who God is. There is not a thought that goes through your mind. There is not a, a feeling that surges in your heart that is not an object of intense interest to God. And you need to reflect on that. And you need to just talk to him about that. All right, that's the first kind of prayer. Just ordinary, 
unvarnished, raw, unguarded human prayer. The second kind of prayer is what might be called evangelistic prayer. And I would say this is an extremely important prayer. We need to pray for people who don't know God. And we just need to be constantly reminded about this one. Because there are times of the year, you know, around Christmas and Easter, when we challenge you to pray for your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers who don't know God, and, and we pray for them, you know, around that time of the year. But I wanna remind you today that we need to ask and keep on asking. We need to seek and continue to seek and we need to knock and knock and knock. Don't stop because you never know what God is gonna do. I wanna share with you a story about a prayer for someone who didn't know God. Uh, it's about a guy named Tony Campolo. Uh, there's a Pentecostal college near Eastern College where Tony teaches. Uh, he's not Pentecostal, but he says he talks so fast that they think he's speaking in tongues, so it works out okay. Uh, one day they invited Tony to speak at a chapel service, and he likes speaking there because they're dynamic, happy people. Uh, just before the service, eight guys took him to the back room and got him on his knees, and they laid their hands on his head and prayed for him, which is a good thing. You know, as a teacher, I know it's like you can take all, you, you, you'll take all the prayer that you can get. And the only problem was these guys prayed for a really long time, and that's usually okay, but the longer they prayed, the more tired they got, and the more tired they got, the more they leaned on his head. I mean, eight guys leaning on your head doesn't feel so good. One guy wasn't even praying for Tony. Instead, he went on and on praying for someone named Charlie Stoldfuss. Dear Lord, you know Charlie Stoldfuss. He lives in the silver trailer down the road about a mile. You know the trailer, Lord, just down the road on the right-hand side. And Tony was thinking, it'll knock it off. What do you think God's saying? You know, what's the address again? But this guy just kept going on about Charlie Stoldfuss. You know, Charlie told me this morning that he's decided to leave his wife and three kids, walk on in his family. Lord, would you step in, do something, bring this family together again? While Tony, Tony is kneeling there, like eight guys leaning on his head, he's asking himself, like, when's this guy gonna knock it off so that I can get these preachers off my head? But he kept going on about Charlie Stoldfuss leaving his wife and kids, constant reminders about the silver trailer a mile down the road on the right-hand side. Finally, the prayers were over. And Tony went out there to preach a great sermon. After he finished, he got in his car, drove on the Pennsylvania Turnpike headed for home. As he drove onto the turnpike, he noticed a hitchhiker. Now, it's probably not wise to pick up a hitchhiker, but Tony said that he's a preacher, and whenever he can get anyone locked in as a captive audience, he does it. Uh, so he stopped to pick him up. He drove a few minutes, and Tony said, Hi, my name's Tony Campolo. What's yours? He said, My name is Charlie Stoldfuss. Tony couldn't believe it. He got off the turnpike at the next edit, exit and headed back. And Charlie got a bit uneasy about that. After a few minutes, he said, hey, mister, where are you taking me? Tony said, I'm taking you home. Charlie narrowed his eyes and asked why. And Tony said, because you just left your wife and three children, right? I mean, that just blew him away. Yeah, that's right. With shock written all over his face, he plastered himself against the car door and never took his eyes off of Tony. And they drove off the turnpike at the next exit. And then Tony really did him in as he drove right up to his silver trailer. When he pulled up, Charlie's eyes seemed to bulge as he asked Tony, how did you know I lived here? Tony said, God told me. He believed God did tell him. And they got out of the car and Tony ordered him to get into the trailer. Half shaking, he answered, right, mister, I'm going. When Charlie opened the door to the trailer, his wife shouted, you're back, you're back. 
and he whispered in her ear, and the more he talked, the bigger her eyes got. And then Tony said with real authority, the two of you sit down. I'm gonna talk, and you're gonna listen. And man, did they listen. And that afternoon, those two young people began a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now here's the deal. It doesn't always happen this dramatically for most people, but Jesus says, when you begin to pray, the Father will give the Holy Spirit, the, the power of the Holy Spirit in some way that we don't fully understand is unleashed when we pray. So don't stop. Today, when you drive somewhere, pray. When you get ready for bed, pray. When you wake up, pray. As you go through the day, pray for the ordinary concerns of your heart. Pray and ask God to do the work of his spirit in the lives of the people who don't know him, that once again, like his church, will just explode with growth and will be filled with awe. Jesus says, don't stop asking. Don't stop seeking. Don't stop knocking. All right, let me pray for you. God, I pray that this week you would help us to remember that we can pray to you about everything, that you are as close to us as the air that we breathe, and that you are concerned with the details about our lives. So help us to bring those details to you. And I pray that we would gain uh, wisdom and understanding about these situations in life, that you would guide us in supernatural ways. And God, I pray that you would continue to break our hearts for the people who are in this community, in our community, where we live, who are lost, who don't know you. God, would you break our hearts for them? Would you remind us to uh, pray for them? Would you open doors for spiritual conversations with them? God, would you lead us by your Holy Spirit so that your church would begin to explode with growth once again and that you would be honored by it all? And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.